and welcome to episode 36 of the Graph Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fairholm. Here at Graph Golf, we are building a smart golf ball and analytics platform. So it only makes sense that we would do a podcast talking about the many iterations of the golf ball that have been made throughout history. From rudimentary beginnings where handcrafted golf balls could only go a short distance all the way to the modern day missiles that are made in factories today. Golf balls have represented the most remarkable transformation out of any piece of equipment in the game. And as we are proving at Graph, that evolution is far from over. In this podcast, I will explain how golf balls started and where they are currently. We'll also go into what they are made out of, how are they made, and what could be in store for the future of golf balls. There have been so many eras of golf balls over the years, each one an improvement to making the game more enjoyable. But as I will explain in this podcast, there are a couple of drawbacks with the modern golf ball that has many people hoping that there will be some changes to some of the rules around how big a golf ball is and how much it does or doesn't spin and other variables that are like that. But no matter how you view it, golf balls are an iconic piece of equipment in all of sport and their history dwarfs some of the other histories of different equipment used in other sports. Before we start, just a reminder that you can learn more about Graph at graph.golf. If you click on the club tab, you can also see all the articles and podcasts we are posting. Many of the, many of the articles have to do with analytics, which is, of, cl- uh, of course, close to our heart given our smart golf ball which will be able to measure ball speed, launch angle, spin rate, and other metrics like that. You can also email me personally at sean at graph.golf if you have any questions about the podcast or about graph. Without further delay, here is a short history of the golf ball. The first recognizable form of golf was played back in Scotland in the early 1400s. So the golf ball has had somewhere near 600 years to evolve. And in that time, it's gone through many additions and forms. Technically, the first golf balls were likely round rocks, pebbles, or other inanimate objects whacked at by a stick. But for the purposes of this podcast, we are going to focus on the four main eras of the golf ball. Of course, within those four eras, There are a lot of other prongs and different areas you can go into, but these are the four main eras, the wooden golf ball, the feathery, the gutta percha, and the rubber core golf ball. The early history of the golf ball has some level of mystery to it, but it's widely believed that round wooden golf balls made from beech and box trees were used to play golf from the 14th through the 17th centuries. Although it wasn't exclusively wooden golf balls throughout that entire time, as we'll get to in a moment. These wooden golf balls were undoubtedly used for other games beyond golf, which is pretty emblematic of how difficult it was to play with these wooden balls. I mean, if you if you think about it, if you have a wooden club hitting a wooden ball, generating any kind of meaningful speed was basically impossible because there was really no compression of any kind. So People did play with these wooden golf balls for a long time, but many also recognized that there was a more efficient golf ball to use, and that was the feathery. The first evidence of the feathery, a painted leather and or pigskin golf ball 
filled with cow hair and later chicken or goose feathers, came in the Netherlands back in 1486. So this overlapped with the wooden golf balls. The feathery was made by boiling feathers, which softened them and allowed them to be more easily stuffed into the leather pouch. And this process took so long that even the best golf ball makers could only produce a few golf balls in a day, if you can, if you can believe that. So as you can imagine, very few of these golf balls were being made, and they were extremely expensive because of that. In today's money, these balls were somewhere around ten to twenty dollars per ball. Uh, you know, that's just an incredible thing to think about. Um, so losing one of these had to be pretty devastating, you'd have to say. And and of course, this almost automatically made golf a game that was more accessible to wealthy participants, although not exclusively. So the feathery was a massive improvement over the wooden golf ball because it flew farther and made the game much easier in comparison. The featheries made it all the way from the late 15th century to the early 19th century, so it's really the longest era of golf ball overall. However, featheries had a few fatal flaws that eventually made them obsolete. First of all, even experienced golf ball makers had a tough time forming a perfectly spherical round golf ball. These were made by hand and, and sewn to the best of their ability, but it was nearly inevitable that the feathers inside of the ball wouldn't be evenly placed throughout the entire ball. In other words, one part of the golf ball was bound to weigh more or less than the other parts, and that meant that the feathery would fly in unpredictable patterns. So the trajectory just was not reliable at the time. Also, and this is a, a big one for places like Scotland and Ireland, when a feathery got wet, you couldn't hit it nearly as far, and it became a lot more susceptible to being damaged or even completely split open when it was hit. So the feathery was never going to be a permanent solution to the golf ball for all of those reasons, including its exorbitant cost. That brings us to the third era of golf ball, the gutta percha. Given that this happened more recently in history, we have a lot more information in how the gutta percha was formed. The gutty, as it was called, was invented in 1848 by the Reverend Robert Adams Patterson, a Scottish-American clergyman who attended the University of St. Andrews, which of course is near the home of golf, where the Open Championship will be played next month. Patterson was very poor, and as I just mentioned about the cost of the feathery, he could not afford it and wanted to find another solution as to how to make a golf ball. So the gutta percha was made a much different way from the feathery. The gutta percha used dry tree sap that could be formed into a sphere using a mold, and that created a rubber-like feel to the ball. This was far less expensive to make, and as such, cost a lot less. Also, the concept of dimples started with this golf ball because golfers noticed that nicks in the ball allowed for a little, little bit better flight, so intentional indentations, aka dimples, were put into the golf ball. So the latter half of the 1800s were played with gutta perches, and that coincided with the game becoming more popular in the UK and eventually in the United States. The next era of golf ball came in, in 1898, when American Coburn Haskell invented the wound rubber core golf ball. 
This is exactly what it sounds like. Haskell took rubber thread and wound it into a ball, bounced it against the floor, and saw how high it could go. It nearly reached the ceiling it went so high. And that became the concept for a new golf ball. This Haskell golf ball had a liquid-filled or solid round core wound with a layer of rubber thread into a larger inner core and then covered with a thin outer shell made out of balata sap. If you hear the term balata in golf, that is referring to the sap that made that shell. Balata is a tree found mainly near the equator in Central America and the Caribbean, uh, also in South America as well. This sap was pretty soft and did cut easily, but it completely changed the distance that a ball could go at the time. Dimples as patterns on the ball became more sophisticated. It became apparent that backspin could be imparted on the ball when using higher lofted clubs. All of a sudden, multiple golf ball companies were selling balls with various dimple patterns. Just a side note on liquid-filled cores as well. They weren't filled with water or anything like that, uh, as you might imagine. They were filled with a kind of corrosive liquid called an alkali, and there was also crushed crystalline material inside of the liquid. This made it fly a little bit farther and straighter. This started around 1917, and it continued for much of the century. And just a kind of a, a funny slash not so funny note on this, kids would sometimes open golf balls just out of curiosity, opening them up with knives and other materials. And the liquid was packed in so tightly that it would explode. And many injuries were caused throughout this uh, throughout this time period, which would last uh, quite a while, actually, uh, into the 1980s, uh, where liquid core golf balls were, were still used and still being uh, cut open like that. Luckily, this doesn't happen anymore. But believe it or not, these wound balata balls hung around deep into the 20th century, and much of what happened throughout the 1900s were improvements around this concept. In the mid-1960s, for example, there was a new synthetic resin named Serlin, and there were new urethane blends for golf ball covers, materials that would slowly replace the Bellotta covers because it was proved that they were more durable and less likely to cut. Other materials like Serlin and urethane were used, and over time, golf balls came to be classified as two-piece, three-piece, or four-piece, depending on how many layered components were in the ball. More on that in a moment. One more side note that is important when you talk about the evolution of golf balls. Golf balls used to be different sizes in competition. I know it's hard to believe, but there used to be a British ball that was smaller and went through the wind easier, and an American ball that was larger and harder to hit offline. So the rules of golf balls are now governed by the United States Golf Association and the Royal and Ancient, aka the USGA and the RNA. And now there are limits for this specifications of a golf ball the diameter can't be any smaller than 1.68 inches and the weight can't exceed 1.62 ounces and believe it or not up until 1990 the rna which runs the open championship allowed smaller golf balls to be played so players commonly showed up with balls that were different sizes and weights nowadays that can't happen because of the regulations set in place but you can imagine how interesting that is 
having different sizes of golf balls amongst different competitors. To understand the more recent history of golf balls better, I'm going to use Titleist as a prime example. Titleist started making golf balls during the Great Depression in 1935, and they established their place as the number one competitive golf ball. Their best balls were wound balls and liquid-filled core balls, and those were called the Professional and the Tour Ballada. These balls generated more spin and were made for better players, but they also had solid core golf balls, so just a solid core of rubber. And they were cheaper, and they were meant for weekend hackers at the time because they were not quite as precise and did not have the same soft feel as the other balls, the professional and the tour ballata. So during the the mid-90s, as competition in the golf ball manufacturing market really heated up, you had Nike, Callaway, different manufacturers coming in and trying different things. Titleist decided to try to combine the best parts of their competitive balls with the best part of their, you know, more weekend hacker golf ball. And this meant experimenting with multi-layer design, something that was considered revolutionary. Over the course of five years in the mid to late 90s, the experiments kept coming back to a prototype that kept the solid core of the weekend hacker ball but with a Serlin casting and a urethane cover. In June of 2000, tour players began testing this prototype ball and immediately noticed a pretty big difference. The sound of the ball was very different, and there was a considerable jump in distance with the solid core ball with this different cover. Pros started using this ball in droves, and Titleist wasn't necessarily the first ones to do this, Nike had also developed a solid core golf ball of similar stature at the time, and Tiger Woods used it to demolish his competition in the 2000 US Open, although he probably would have won without it as well. However, Titleist was so widely used that the Pro V1 was considered a game changer. Where did the name come from, you ask? It was initially just a prototype name. The Pro part was for professional, which was, the, which was the name of the previous ball. The V was for veneer, which is the name of the layer of urethane on the cover. And the one was simply because it was the first, uh, that the name was originally just going to be a placeholder, but the players liked it and the popularity of the ball made it difficult to change at that point. So we still have the same name today and really a lot of the same design components, the same fundamentals are, are the same today. The Pro V1 made its official PGA Tour debut in October of 2000 at the Invensys Classic in Las Vegas with 47 players putting it into play. And that made it the largest shift of equipment at one event in golf history. Billy Andrade, who used the ball that week, won the tournament at 28 under par and it immediately became a sensation. The multi-layer construction turned out to really be revolutionary, and Titleist also decided to make a four-piece ball of the same materials, which is now called the Pro V1X. About 300,000 Pro V1 and Pro V1Xs are made every day at the Titleist ball plant. So think back to back when those featheries were being made, and there were only a few of them being made every day. Now we have 300,000 being made every day just by one company. The modern-day Pro V1 
is obviously more complex than the first version over two decades ago. And this is a great example of the science that a golf ball now goes through in this new era. The core materials now include polybutadiene, a synthetic rubber that produces a high energy return and can be altered to a number of desired characteristics, cross-linking agents that increase resiliency and speed when cured, peroxides and fillers to adjust weight. The materials are then mixed and turned into a slab of uncured rubber that's heated at more than 300 degrees. It's pressed and rolled into sheets, and each sheet is cooled for at least two hours before going through the extrusion process, where the ball goes from a prep, which is basically a, a long cylindrical piece of rubber material, into a machine that shapes each into uh, into a prep, which is a core, basically, a, a more round figure. From there, each core is pre-treated by abrading the surface, so it will accept the casing layer that's molded over the top of that. The cover is then attached to the core in two pieces, the top half being first, and then welded together for cover molding. The core and the shell are then placed in a mold that features the dimple design, as we talked about earlier, the many dimple designs that are uh, out there today. There's no limit actually to the amount of dimples that are on a golf ball. They just have to be symmetrical. Once the ball has been molded together, a unique urethane cover is added before it's buffed and sprayed with a latex primer and a finishing coat of paint. Vision technology is then used to locate within the dimple pattern, the correct placement of the Titleist logo, the number, and the side stamp, that, that arrow that you see on the side of golf balls now. From there, balls are x-rayed and hand-checked by a Titleist employee for imperfections. Yes, that, that's correct. The golf balls are actually x-rayed now, and it's, it's quite a process. If you've ever been to the Titleist factory, uh, it's in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I've had the pleasure of going there and seeing it. It's a it's an operation. There are tons of employees, hundreds of employees making sure the process works works accurately and effectively. So that's a long, long way from the feathery days. Golf balls have become so advanced, the best players in the world are able to take advantage of them, maybe to the point where, as I mentioned before, the ball may be going actually too far at this point. Um, the average distance on the PGA Tour has steadily risen in 2000, that average was 273 yards. 273 yards would rank dead last in the tour this season. Uh, there is not a single player on tour who averages that number or less. The worst player is Brian Stewart at 275 yards. So the average is now well over 300 yards, and we now have players averaging you know, into the 320 yards uh, at, at this point. You may ask, why is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, really, it comes down to the health of golf at its core. Golf courses have to be made longer because the ball goes a lot longer. And there are all sorts of ramifications that come from golf courses having to use more land. Uh, notably, you have to use more water, uh, mowing, um, the, the labor cost, fertilizer, things of that nature. And it also, in general, makes the game longer, harder, and slower for the average player who plays from too great of a distance, picking tees that are that are too far for their abilities. 
So some would also argue it's not great for the professional game either because a lot of shorter golf courses without any room to expand and to buy other properties and to kind of move their tees back have now lost their appeal because par fours can be easily reached and they can't really hold up to the modern game. So currently, as we're recording this, the USGA and RNA, they're going through a process to figure out equipment regulations that limit the distance the golf ball goes for the top players while still making the game as easy as possible for the average player. As of this recording, nothing has been officially announced, but it's possible there will be some modifications that perhaps add some spin to the ball for professionals, making it harder for them to hit the ball as hard as possible and still not have much spin on the ball, which allows the ball to travel a really long distance and relatively straight. This could put more of a priority on, you know, having contact in the center of the face rather than what we have right now, which is professionals really having no fear at all when they take the driver out of the bag. And, you know, it's not just the golf ball, obviously the size of the driver heads and just the different technology that is available now has really made distance, you know, possible these, these really long distances. So all that right now is being evaluated to still keep the game exciting and and playable for the average player, but at the same time, maybe making the game a little bit more uh, reined in at, at the professional level. And I wanted to end where we began talking about graph and the future of golf balls. So far, we have talked about all sorts of materials going into a golf ball, feathers, corrosive liquid, rubber, many different materials at this point. But one thing that has never really successfully gone inside of a golf ball to this point is electronics that can actually provide feedback on how you hit the ball in terms of spin rate, launch angle, velocity, and a lot more. It's a complex project, but that is our vision at Graph. Being able to practice and maybe even one day play with a golf ball that has electronics inside of it. And when you think about the modern world, that makes sense, doesn't it? For everything that we own now that can be, you know, that goes into certain objects that can measure our every move, it just makes sense that our golf balls wouldn't only be made of inanimate objects. You know, if if they can provide feedback and data, that can really change the way that golfers think about golf balls. And that could be a very exciting future. So that's one of the reasons why we want to do a podcast, just talking about where golf balls have been and the possibility for where they could go in the future. That's it for our episode today. Just a short history on golf balls. Hopefully you learned a few things along the way. Please rate and review the podcast. If you do have a, a few moments to do that, it really helps you know, our, our standing in the rankings and everything like that. We'll be back in a few weeks with another podcast, and we will see you again soon. Cheers.